The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be uh, hearing from God's word in Matthew chapter 4, but I'm going to re- read uh, the preceding passage in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. It's the baptism of Christ because it informs what we're going to be hearing from God's word uh, today. But once you've turned there, I invite you to rise for a reading of God's word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for nothing less than your presence now. Father, I pray that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word and you deliver us the gospel. Father, I pray that every person in this room, including myself, would taste afresh the forgiving, merciful grace of God in Christ because of what you have for us in your word today. We have a feast laid out before us in the scriptures and I pray that we would, that we would eat to our heart's content this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, Casey wasn't kidding when he was talking earlier about how long this has been developing. You're examining my, my preaching uh, to see if I'm fit to be a pastor. Uh, you'd think, oh, Joe moved out here uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, and wow, that's been a really long time. He's been preparing for this. Well, I'll tell you that when the notion first occurred to me that I might be called to be a pastor, it was 12 years ago. There was five years before that where I was busy preparing. Now, that's not because, Ashley, we we do take a slow process, but it doesn't have to be that slow. Now, you see, you think, oh, 12 years is a long time to prepare for something that, what is he, like a neurosurgeon? No, it sounds like a long time, but listen, if you were there to see this whole process, you'd, man, that's soon, huh? 12 years. You know, I, but, but that's, that's, that's a Joe thing. That's something that I've learned is just part of the package. It's part of the operating system. Uh, I rarely get things right on the first crack at the bat. Anybody will tell you that. Kennedy will tell you that. Uh, the pastors will tell you that. Uh, I win, I, when I win is over the long haul, I'm just going to keep trying until you're like, why, why is he still doing this? And eventually, I've, I start to figure things out. And this, this goes beyond uh, uh, my call to the pastorate. Uh, when, when Kennedy and I first got married, we, were on our honeymoon, we spent our, our honeymoon in Punta Cana. And it was just like a wonderful week uh, with an, at an all-inclusive resort. And I was thinking, man... 
What a great start. This is just the start to, to marital bliss for the rest of our days. But lo and behold, on the plane, my skin began to swell. Uh, I began to develop a rash, and by the time I had gotten, we had gotten back to the States, uh, I had developed what, what is called sun poisoning. And so that night, as I lay in, in bed with Kennedy, our first night in, in, together at home, I threw up in the bed. And Kennedy was, had cleaned up after me. Uh, and man, I'll tell you what, the shine was off the apple for her. All, all the, the knight in shining armor was gone. Here he is vomiting in the bed. But this, is, this even predates Kennedy. You know, my favorite Christmas gift I've ever been, been given, and I love giving them, seeing my kids face light up, and you still remember the really good ones. My dad got me one of those Jeeps that have the battery in them when I was like four or five years old, or I could drive it myself. And, uh, you know, firstly, first, we got to take this baby for a spin. So he takes me to the park, and literally the first time I push on the gas pedal, I drive it immediately into a lake. All right? So my father comes in chasing after me because he sees my, my thing. I've disappeared under the surface of the water, and he dives in head first into two feet of water, knocks himself out. Okay, this is all. Listen, guys, this is a thing. I'm telling you, this is a thing, and this is the reason I don't do new. It's the new year. You all are excited about what you. I don't do New Year's resolutions. Lots of y'all are inviting me to do these. I'm not interested because listen, I already know. Here, let me give you. Not only do I is that do I have a reason for not doing a New Year's resolution? Uh, I have 13 reasons why. Here they are. P90X, insanity. Read the Bible in a year. Read the New Testament in three months. Read the Old Testament in six months. The chronological Bible, re Bible reading plan, 75 hard, 75 soft. Couch to 10K in six weeks. Couch to marathon in six months. Keto, Whole30, intermittent fasting. This is my New Year's resolution graveyard. All right, this is a, this is a pile of bodies that's get, that grows larger every March uh, by the time I run out of steam. I'm not very good at the very beginning, but I've grown to appreciate it about myself. You know, I'm kind, I've come to think of myself like your granddad's pickup truck. You know, you got to let me idle for a while before you try to get going. Uh, but the, the, these starts, I, I do it because I, I can't get past this dip. And so to trick myself, I'll usually start my resolution around April. I'll, you, you know, I kind of wait. I'm like, hey, there's no pressure. It's not a big resolution. I just got to, I've got to ease into it to get through the dip, you know, that comes whenever I start something that's very exciting and then reality sets in and it's the same kind of excitement with a little bit of a drop-off that we see here in the text. You see, Jesus has just been baptized by John, and at his baptism, there's this miraculous picture that we get to see, where the whole Trinity is on display. You see the Son immersed in the waters, ever obedient. You see the Spirit descending like a dove, and then you hear the Father's voice Boom out, confirming the divine identity of this son. This is no prophet. This is no teacher. This is my very own son. But the narrative shifts jarringly 
after that. Look, at, look with me in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, he was hungry. You know, I had the privilege of baptizing my own son a few weeks ago. A lot of you were here for that. And it's got to be top three moments of my life. Uh, you know, and afterwards there was this huge celebration. We went to a, a burger joint and got burgers together. Uh, and my whole family, we ended up celebrating. It was a huge celebration day for the church. Uh, now, I often imagine if we had skipped the burger restaurant and I had driven him to the nearest desert, kicked him out and said, good luck fighting Satan. There's no food for you here, by the way, so good luck. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of jarring from the excitement of the moment of baptism up until this jettisoning out into the wilderness. And when we think of wilderness, we think of like the, the we think of Smokey the Bear. No, it, the wilderness in this, in the, in, in the Middle East, this is going to be a desert, a barren desert. And Jesus is thrust out here, no food, and he's sent out to Satan. And, th and this isn't an accident. It said that the spirit has led him here. The very same spirit that descended on him is now leading him into a, a horrible situation, it seems. And let, let, let's, see what, let's see what happens here in verse 3. It says, uh, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So he, he, he asks him a question, he offers him a challenge, and the first statement really clues us into what Satan's trying to do. So he's thrust out here to be tempted. Now when we hear that word tempting, we think of uh, when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted uh, to do something wrong, when we're tempted, uh, when we feel guilty. We often feel guilty about our temptations. But here in, in this passage, when he uses the word tempting, it, 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 there's a sense of a testing or to make proof of. So he's, he's put out here to make proof of his identity as the son that, that God has just placed on him this title. The father has said this in his baptism, and he thrusts him out in the wilderness to say, okay, if you're my son, let's see it. And that's what Satan's asking him. He goes, if you are the son of God, he's putting Jesus's divine identity to the test. And he says, command these stones to be loaves of bread. Now let's take a moment you know, I remember uh, when, I was, when I was in high school and playing sports, my coaches would always put on, we wouldn't just practice what we were doing. We would study what our opponents were doing so we can know what they're trying to do. So in this moment, I'm going to ask you, let's, 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 let's put ourselves in the place of Satan here. Let's, let's, let's think about what is he thinking here? He, you think about him seeing what had happened at the baptism. Oh, wait, this is the promised son. This is the one who Genesis 3 says, he's coming to crush my head. Okay, how am I going to derail this mission? How am I going to derail this one? I'm going to wait for a moment when he's weak. I'm going to wait for a moment. So he waits until this moment where he's in the desert and he's been fasting for 40 days. Now, if we pause here, we think about a fast for 40 days. It's very easy for us right now to dehumanize Jesus. You see, what I, what I immediately begin thinking when I read that Jesus fasted for 40 days, oh, this is just something special that he can do. 
This is just something that he does because of he's divine. This isn't something that I could do. This is just something that, that, that only Jesus is capable of, and it really wouldn't have hurt him that bad. He wouldn't have been that hungry. The text has no indication of that interpretation. There is no indication. In fact, it's well documented that a human, given water, can survive beyond 40 days without food. In fact, in Luke 4, the parallel account of this, of this story, it says, and he was in the desert and ate nothing, which indicates that he had access to water. Long story short, Jesus was hungry, and he's as hungry as you would have been after 40 days. Now listen, there's a lot of times when I can be tempted to sin. Usually it's when I'm grumpy. All right, and when I'm gr- when I'm grumpy, there's normally an- I'm either tired or I'm hungry. And, and, and he's waiting, and he sees Jesus hungry. And listen, it's, if I haven't eaten in five hours, I'm angry, let alone 40 days and 40 nights, right? But here he sees Jesus, and not only that, we have a rich history of what happens to God's people when they're in the wilderness and hungry. If you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, right? It's at this moment where Esau, he has this inheritance from his father, And then he gives up his inheritance because he's hungry. Jacob offers him, he says, if you just take this this bowl of soup, I'll take the inheritance. He gives it up. And we go uh, into the desert after the exodus, after God's people are freed, after God's presence has been made crystal clear to them, uh, they're thrust into the desert and it's, as soon as they get hungry, they begin questioning the whole deal. Say, maybe we should turn back. Maybe this whole thing was a mistake. Maybe we were wrong for following this Moses here into the desert. So with this rich history of failure for God's people, Satan looks at Jesus and says, he's hungry and he's alone. It's time. Now is my chance. And he approaches him and challenges him and says, well, if you're the son of God, why don't you just make your own meal? Why don't, you just make, why don't you just make bread out of these stones? And of course we know Jesus is fully capable of that. Yes, he's, he's fully man. He's hungry in this moment, but we can't forget that he's fully God. He's fully divine. It's completely within his power to change these stones into bread. But that's not what Satan's after, is it? What he's looking to see is if Jesus will stop relying on his father's providence and will provide for himself. This is the first wedge he tries to hammer in between the Father and the Son. And we'll see how Jesus responds. And he says this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, but we see that Jesus, even though it's within his power to satisfy his desires, he says no. Now, here's, here's the reversal. Here's the flip we see here. We've just heard that Jesus is this divine son from the heavens. Jesus has all of the status, all of the authority, and yet he doesn't fulfill his own desires. Now, I've worked a lot of different jobs, but I've worked for a lot of different uh, small businesses and a lot of businesses where the family works. And I've had radically different experiences with how the boss's son behaves. I've worked in a job where the boss's son acted like he owned the place. And what that looked like was he didn't take care of much. He was late to all of his shifts. He was entitled. He was bossy. 
Yeah, the boss's son was kind of a jerk. But I've also worked at companies where the boss's son worked later than everyone else, took more care, uh, was, was, was more careful about the details, but we don't see that very often. We see when we look at the upper stratosphere of status in our culture, those who have the most status and power live the most comfortable lives. Those with the least status and power live the least comfortable lives. But here when we come to the Son of God, the highest, the Son of the Ancient of Days, the King Jesus, his status and power is accompanied by the worst living conditions. There's a reversal here. The, privilege, the, the, the status of Jesus as the Son of God does not mean Jesus lived a privileged existence at all. In fact, his status and power made him suffer. He suffered while he was with us. Now, this is not something new. In fact, Jesus doesn't say, oh, this is just for me, and that's what make us feel comfortable. We would say, oh, Jesus lived with nothing, so I, now I get to have everything I want. No. In fact, Matthew 16, 24, he says this. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is telling us that the way of Christ is the way of self-denial. And that means a lot for us, especially in our current culture. You know, Kennedy, uh, uh, my, my daughter spent uh, a few days in the hospital uh, this, uh, two weeks ago. And while she was there, uh, I was staying and watching Miles at home. But this begs the question, you know, what is Joe going to eat when Kennedy is gone? Now, listen, uh, that would normally be a problem for a long time in human history, but I would just door dash, and I had a, uh, I had a delicious steak at my door in 15 minutes. Someone brought it, you know, right to me. And in our current digital age, when uh, almost anything you could want to see or anything you could want to consume is in your pocket, there's a screen that could bring you food, you know, within, within one, you know, Amazon, they have one day shipping now. There's stuff that gets there the next day if you want it. It's right at your fingertips. Anything you want is almost at your fingertips. The message of Christ as the ultimate self-denier is something that we really need to pay attention to in our current context. You see, when we have the world at our fingertips, it's more important than ever that we follow Christ on the path of self-denial. Where he who had anything he wanted at his fingertips, even just bread after he hadn't eaten after 40 days, he, said to, he looked into his desires and he said, no, I'm not going to slake that desire. I'm going to be reliant on my Father. It's vital that we begin practicing self-restraint. And I want to encourage you at the beginning of this year to reflect. You know, a lot of you are looking and we look at and we're making our resolutions based on the end goal. So you're saying, oh, you know, I want to lose 15 pounds. You know, it, it, that's, a, that's a common one. Weight loss. Or I want, to read, uh, I want to read this many books. Or I want to accomplish this. I want to go back to school. You're, you're thinking about the end goal, but I want to encourage you to, to shape your resolutions based on this concept instead. I want you to reflect on your lives and say, where are the areas where I lack self-restraint? 
So instead of saying, oh, I want to lose 15 pounds, instead, I want to stop overeating. I want to limit my desire for food. I want to restrain it, or I want to spend less on Amazon, or I want to watch TV less, or I want to play video games less so that I can treasure Christ more. You need to connect these resolutions to your worship of Christ. And only then are you going to find the success that you're looking for, but also you're going to find lasting change if you connect it to your worship of Jesus. So we see Jesus denying himself, but then we see a counterfeit voice come to him in verses, uh, let's, let's begin in verse 5 in the first half of verse 6. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. So this holy city is the city Jerusalem. This is the center of the Jewish world. This is the metropolis. Not only that, it's the center of of Jewish commerce, but it's also the center of Jewish worship. The temple is here. This is where when when they would think of God's manifest presence and his protection, it would be at the temple. This is where we can see there's a visual representation of God's presence and blessing for us. And, he, and also, this is a really important place in the world because you've got to bring yourself back into this world. Listen, we walk, we, we drive through, we, as we drive through LaGrange, you drive through Louisville, you can see all manner of buildings that if you leapt off of them, yeah, you'd be dead. But, but back in this time, right, buildings were almost never beyond one story or maybe even a story and a half tall. And to see the temple in Jerusalem would have been a breathtaking sight because it's massive, and so he offers him, he says, he says, if you're the son of God, he calls his identity into question again, and he says, throw yourself down, jump off. But this time, at this offer, after he's been denied once, Satan takes a different strategy here. Well, let's continue in verse 6. It says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Right? We're familiar with kind of that song, strike your foot against a stone, he'll raise you up on eagle's wing. Yeah, that's, it's actually a quotation from Psalm 91. So Satan, in order to test Christ and to test his allegiance to his father, he quotes scripture. He brings the Bible into it. He says, well, why don't you, t- why don't you throw yourself down? Because this, the Bible says he's going to command his angels to come and rescue you. So if you jump, the angels are going to come and swing you. Why? Because on their hands, they'll bear you up and you won't strike your foot against a stone. So it's biblical, says Satan. Looks at Jesus says, this is totally in, 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 this is in harmony with the scriptures for you to do this. You'd be faithful. And then we look at Jesus' response. He says, again it is written, you shall not put your God to the test. What we have, what we're seeing here in this conflict is two different ways of interpreting and applying the Bible. Satan takes these verses from Psalm 91. He takes these verses out. This is a psalm about God's general protection of his people and says, hey, you know, these verses, you could, you could do this. And Jesus responds to Satan, who's taken these verses out of their context, who's taking them out of their place in the scriptures, 
and then has placed them up against one of the commands of God to the people Israel. It says, okay, while you've delivered this, this scriptural principle here, I have a command here in scripture to counteract that. And I'm not going to disobey a direct, a direct command from my father. And here we can see that Satan is more than comfortable with using scripture to deceive us. Right? This isn't a one-time deal. In fact, it's a pattern that we can continually see through the scriptures. He's misinterpreting and misapplying a psalm to deceive. Now, here's, there's three reasons why this is important for us. This is important for us, especially uh, as Baptists. You see, before, every, before each of you have become a member, we, we ask you to confirm a few theological things that we, we cannot disagree on, or else we can't have you as a member. One of those things is, I believe that the word of God is perfect and inerrant. And yes, amen, we can all, we can all attest to the truth of that, can't we? The, the word of God is perfect and inerrant. We all have what we call a high view of scripture, as did Jesus. But what, but what Satan is trying to exploit here, he's trying to exploit Jesus' high view of scripture and is hoping that he doesn't have a knowledge of it. He's hoping that, oh, because it's scripture, he's just going to take it at face value in whatever way I'm using it. And the same goes for us, church. Just because you have a high view of scripture, it does not prevent you from being attacked by Satan. In fact, it exposes you to it. Here's what I mean. You know, you may, you may get yourself into a situation where someone has wronged you, and then Someone will come to you and say, well, you know, the scripture says an eye for an eye, so you need to make sure that you make this right. In fact, it says it in, in Exodus 21, it says, it says in, Exodus, in Exodus 21, it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's even something that you might even see on Facebook, right? You can't let people get away with wronging you in this life. But if you haven't read later in Matthew 5, where, you said, where Jesus himself says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer him the other also. You see, you could follow in exact vengeance on your enemies according to, to Exodus 21 and think, yeah, I love the Bible. But if you haven't had a personal encounter with it and don't understand and read the scriptures for yourself, you're going to be deceived and led into temptation. Here's another way, here's another way it happens. Uh, a lot of the mistruths that we hear come with scripture references. I'm going to read for you three quotes from a best-selling book. In fact, the most best-selling book uh, in Christianity for Christian living, it says this, you're meant to be the hero of your own story. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. And you should be the very first of your priorities. Listen, that is not a secular self-help book. That is not some Dr. Phil stuff. That is the number one Christian living, best-selling book. 
This is being marketed to you as Christianity. If you have not read the scriptures, if you do not see the scriptures of the voice from Christ and not just a list of citations and proof texts, you are going to be deceived, brothers and sisters. So what am I asking you to do here? I'm asking you to read your Bibles this year. Read your Bibles. You are in great danger if you don't. So there's, there's a couple things you can do, but here's the thing. Whatever your resolutions are, whatever you're thinking about for this upcoming year, you need to have a plan for Bible intake. And I'm not saying you need to read the Bible in a year. That's a huge bar, especially if you're not currently reading your Bible regularly. That is fine. You don't have to, sh- you don't have to automatically try to sh- swing for the fences when you're making these plans. Maybe your goal is to read a few verses a day. Maybe your goal is to listen to the Bible on your way to work. There's great apps uh, and, and Bible apps that have Bible readings plans you can just listen to if you can't read it. But you have got to start the Bible intake this year. You've got to expose yourselves to the scriptures. Here's another reason we need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be in the scriptures. You know, Satan is a huge advocate for this proof texty way of interpreting the Bible. But there's an alternative way to read the Bible. It's reading the Bible as the voice of Christ, as the word of Christ. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. The scripture was made by him and for him. He is the author of these texts. And as we begin to read the Bible as an address from Christ, we'll begin understanding it in a different way. And it, it happens, you can tell all the time, it, it shows clear as a bell when someone is reading the Bible, looking for like permission for things to do and looking for just like the bare minimum or reading it as, as a personal address from Christ and they're wrestling with it. Now listen, what I'm, and what I'm not saying here is that the Bible, uh, what I want to say is the Bible's full of objective truth. Okay, the meaning, the meaning is not dynamic. There is objective revelation in the Bible. It is all true, every John Tittle. But there is a kind of a bonus meaning for believers who when they're reading it, the scripture come alive, comes alive by the power of the spirit and reveals things to them about their personal life and their situations in their hearts that isn't being revealed to everybody else. There's this exciting, dynamic uh, layer of meaning that is just so much fun uh, to explore. But when someone doesn't have it, you can see it. And I see it all the time when we're discussing kind of hot topic issues. Uh, say when, we're, when we talk about, you know, there's all kinds of disagreements about what the Bible says about alcohol. And so, you know, you'll often, you be talking to someone about it and they'll say, well, the Bible says that you can drink. Okay, well, well that's true. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't outright condemn the use of alcohol, but that's not its only word on the topic. It's not just like this list of do's and don'ts, right? The Bible has all kinds of things to say about self-control, about temperance, about drunkenness, about the ability of wine to gladden the heart. And you're meant to wrestle with all of it personally and then come to a conviction about your own life and heart. 
Okay, it's not just like, oh, I have permission, or like about divorce, you, you come into a couple that's on the brink of the divorce, and they say, oh, well, the Bible says, you know, we can get divorced. Well, yeah, it, it does offer permission to get divorced in these situations where someone's been abandoned or abused. God will not leave one of his children in a place where they have no recourse uh, to escape and to protect themselves, but it says a whole lot more about the importance of your marriage, about the importance of fidelity, about the importance of commitment how your marriage uh, it, it represents this, this relationship between Christ and the church. It says so much more than just, oh, it says I can do this, it says I can do that, but you can only see it if you've experienced it. So here's what I want to recommend. Make it a part of your Bible reading plan, but listen, don't do it alone. You know, if, especially if you're reading from Genesis to, to Revelation, listen, you, you're, you're probably going to gas out around Numbers or Leviticus, if you're doing that. But what I want to encourage you to do is don't try and do this alone, right? Don't try and do this without accountability. We know this from our, our you know, our weight loss attempts where we try to do it alone, but then, you know, the bag of lays starts calling our name. Uh, you, you need accountability with anything that's difficult, so I want to encourage you to find a relationship, someone you can pursue this, this new way of hearing the voice of Christ in the scriptures, and you can pursue it with them. And it makes it a heck of a lot easier, and we've got resources for that. Uh, I want you to find someone in your Bible fellowship group. Find someone, join one of our equipped groups or groups of people, of a few people who get together and read the Bible. There's so many resources where you can begin reading the Bible in community and they're going to help you be regular in it, right? And they're going to help stoke the fire of your affections for the Word of God. It's, it's an acquired taste. It's something you're going to have to work at. But I want to encourage you to do those things. So don't, but definitely don't try to do this alone. But listen, the, the, the scriptures, and listen, the Christians who've, who've experienced this, who've experienced the riches and the, and the beauty that's contained within the scriptures, they're there and they're real, but you cannot get it secondhand. You cannot get it because your grandma reads the Bible or because your pastor reads the Bible and delivers good sermons on Sunday. No, you've got, you've got to get into the scriptures. But let's see where Satan continues and he, and he makes another attempt uh, to tempt Jesus. Look at verse 8. It says, again... The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I have no idea where he's taking him. Right? What is this high mountain where you can see all the kingdoms uh, of the world? We're not certain. But he's, Satan is making his strongest and most enticing offer yet. He says, uh, you can have all the kingdoms of the world in their glory if you will but fall down and worship me. Now, the reason I say this is Satan's most enticing offer is two particular reasons. The first one is that this is the, the promised inheritance that Jesus has already been offered. Psalm 2 says, I'll tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth will be your possession. 
This is, this is a word from God to his son saying, I'm going to make the nations your inheritance. You're going to be the heir of the whole world. In Philippians 2, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, him being Christ, and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't we see in Revelation that arrayed around Christ is not a group of people that all look the same from the same country. They're not all Israelites. No, there's a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation clothed in white offering their worship to Christ. The inheritance for Christ for his sufferings is a multicultural, diverse group of people who praise him above all else. And Satan is offering him every kingdom of the world except for two very distinct differences. Number one, you can have it fast. You can have it quickly, instantaneously. And the second, uh, the second part of the offer is this. He's offering it to Jesus on his own terms. You see, this path to his inheritance is convenient. There's certainly no poverty, right? He's giving him an easy out from the life that he's been inserted into. There's no, there's no need to run from the religious leaders. There's no, there's no need to run from Roman soldiers, there's, there's no uh, endless walking mile after mile after mile. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. And there is certainly no cross on this path. He's offering him a path to his inheritance without his sufferings, without the cross. And we see how Jesus responds. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus, when presented with the option of obeying and suffering or disobeying and having comforts, he chooses obedience and suffering every single time. He is the obedient son of the most high God. Where Israel failed, Jesus is faithful. Where we have failed, Jesus is faithful. He is choosing the most difficult path, but it's the one that leads to our redemption, church, and praise the name of Christ for that. He is this ever-obedient son. He is the one who's given this identity as the beloved son. And that's the identity that we receive by union with Christ. We are now able to be called sons of God who can cry out, Abba, Father. But unlike us, Jesus is ever faithful. He is ever obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He will always obey his Father. Satan has tried three times in this passage to drive a wedge between that holy relationship, between the faithful father and the obedient son, and he's failed every time because Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. It is him, church, and I urge you, please, if you have not followed him by faith, this obedient son, this faithful one, he is the only one who deserves your worship. 
Please stop chasing after the idols of your heart, over what you, what you want for your dream life, over the, the ideal life you're trying to build, even with your New Year's resolutions. Forget that. Follow Christ. He is the only one worthy of your worship. And then we see finally here in verse 11, what is, how, what, how does the father respond to his obedient son? It says, then the devil left him. He's given up. He's left as a failure this time. And behold, then the angels came and were ministering to him. That word ministering to him, when you think, oh, you, the angels came and were ministering, maybe you're thinking of the angels came and sang Jesus' song. Or maybe, you know, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that the angels were ministering? Well, in the Greek, the word is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. These are the, deacons are the men who are called uh, to meet the practical needs of people in the church. It's this, it, the word diakonos, it comes with this theme of, of, of humble service, meeting these physical needs. The son obeys, the father sends these angels to meet Jesus' practical needs. God, the father, has been, is being faithful to his son. And here we see the relationship unbroken. The relationship that will be most clearly seen on the cross where he nails his own son to the cross, pours out his wrath on his son, but then three days later, his son rises again. The father is utterly faithful to his son. As much as Jesus is obedient to his father, the father is faithful to this one. In church, that is the basis of our hope. Not in us, not in our performance, but in an obedient son and a faithful father. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would help 